Well, hello there, ladies and gents. Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have special guest Deanna Rogers on. She is the brains behind Sacred Cow, the book, the course, the documentary, and all that it entails. She is a registered dietitian, so we dive into how beef and red meat can be advantageous from a nutritional standpoint. We also talk about it from an ethical and environmental standpoint. We dive into regenerative agriculture and what all that involves, and I learned a ton. I hope you do as well. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation with Deanna Rogers. And we are live. Deanna, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I am great as well. I'm glad to have you. It's uh, you, You've been just crazy busy lately. I have. I've got a lot going on. And, um, you know, I live on a farm. It's never been a busier time for us on the farm, too. We're completely sold out for the year already. Um, so, you know, this is a great time to be talking about the topic of better meat. You being on a farm says a lot right there. I grew up on a farm as well, and that alone can take up your entire day. So that plus a business and a book and everything else you're trying to do, like you just don't sleep, right? I have two kids, too. Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't have kids yet, but I can't imagine throwing that into the mix. Yes, yes. I mean, they're teenagers, and so they're both um, now child labor for us, which mm-hmm. is um, really fortunate. So um, our 16-year-old son is our best tractor driver, and our 14-year-old daughter does a lot of uh, child care for um, one of the employees here and also works in the store. So That's good, good. good to have them at this point. Yep. And I feel like growing up on a farm, growing up on land in general, like you learn – more life skills doing that that prepare you for how to be a better human than you can acquire in any kind of, you know, normal day-to-day job? Well, definitely. And, um, you know, now with uh, coronavirus, you know, all the schools are now doing Zoom classes. Mm-hmm. And we actually, um, for, for our son, this wasn't an option, but for our daughter, who's just leaving eighth grade, um, we actually pulled her out of school because these silly Zoom classes were just kind of going over, you know, old information and you know she's learning so much more taking care of this five-month-old baby and working in the store i mean that's math that's uh sociology it's uh it's english it's it's public speaking i mean it's so many things um and so uh you know screw zoom (laughs) yeah i feel like a lot of schools i don't have kids but i feel like a lot of these schools are just trying to check that box and do something but it's like not actually benefiting most children uh, it is certainly not benefiting, um, you know, either one of my kids. Uh, my son is a very hands-on learner and um, Zoom, I mean, he just wants to do stuff and move around and, he, you know, s- sitting in front of a computer is just not the way he learns. And so, um, you know, I, I think he's learning way more um, in the afternoons when he's out um, working with our crew, um, you know, leadership skills. I mean, he's going to be an amazing farmer if he decides to do that with his with his life. I love it. I love it. For anybody that doesn't know, you are the brains behind the book, The Sacred Cow. You've got a documentary coming out. Like, I want to just kind of peel the curtain back on that and mm-hmm. dive into the world of regenerative agriculture because I feel like you're – pretty much spearheading that movement. And that's kind of a buzzword right now in the keto carnivore, you know, Mm -hmm. low carb paleo space. But I feel like a lot of people don't know much about that. So I'd love to have you kind Mm -hmm. of dive into the details there. But before we even get to that, I'd love to just hear 
about what got you into this space in the first place? Like what made you want to live on land and be totally self-sufficient? Well, um, so I grew up, um, working on farms as my summer job in high school and college. I grew up on Eastern Long Island, which um, a, a lot of people might picture as, as being very population dense, but actually the Eastern end of Long Island is, is very rural. Um, and, you know, my options were to be a babysitter or <laughs> work on farms. And I just thought being outside and working on farms was a lot more fun at the time. Um, and then, um, I met my, uh, husband in college and, um, he was always very athletic and loved being outside and, um, you know, with the environment, but didn't really know how to make a living doing that. And then read a book by Wendell Berry called the unsettling of America, culture and agriculture. And that book changed his life pretty much. Um, that really got him thinking about agriculture and um, he just went down that rabbit hole really quickly. He realized that he could be outside. He could be using his body. Um, I mean, he's pretty much like a professional athlete. Um, and uh, but he just uses uses his body to grow food. Um, and he just finds it so incredibly rewarding. Um, I ended up uh, I, I found out when I was 26 that I had celiac disease undiagnosed celiac disease pretty much my whole life, which had explained a lot of the health issues mm -hmm. that I had dealt with, um, all growing up and, and through high school and college. Um, and going gluten-free was, um, a big change for me, but it didn't solve everything. I still had major blood sugar issues and it really wasn't until I went uh, lower carb, and more kind of paleo keto that um, I really realized, oh my God, you know, I, I don't have to be a slave to granola bars constantly and I can skip lunch and actually not have tunnel vision. This is like blew my mind. Um, and so, uh, so the book I read was a paleo solution and, um, I actually became really good friends with Rob Wolf and, um, he's always been a huge supporter of sustainable agriculture. And we were talking about, you know, my life on the farm and, um, I noticed on social media, you know, people were interested when I posted about nutrition, but they were really interested when I posted about you know, the sheep and the pigs and, and how we grow food here and what asparagus looks like when it comes out of the ground and things like that. Um, and so I decided to sort of dive into this area where um, I was kind of looking at um, optimal food for humans and what is the most sustainable way to produce it. And I think a lot of people um, who are talking about sustainable diets are looking at, you know, what's the most sustainable thing to grow and then how can we feed that to humans? And that's where we end up with these, um, plant-based arguments. And so if you take it the other way and say, well, what's the most ideal diet for humans? And then how can we grow that in the most sustainable way? You end up with a solution that looks a lot more like regenerative agriculture and, um, a more sort of low carb paleo keto type diet. Um, and so the book Sacred Cow and the, and the film that I recently made called Sacred Cow um, really looks at um, nutrition first. And mm -hmm. we kind of, you know, tackle the arguments that meat causes cancer and uh, it's unhealthy and that we need to be eating 
um, you know, no meat in order to be healthy. And then we move on to the environmental case and the ethical case for meat, because I don't think you can have an ethical argument about whether or not to eat animals without fully understanding the impact that animals have on our food system and on our overall um, public health uh, position. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't just talk about, well, it's wrong to kill things. Um, you need to have a full understanding of, of what a diet without food looks like. What does a food system without animals look like um, in order to be able to properly talk about ethics? I love it. I feel like this is, this is a topic that has just so much confusion around it. And, but it's, it's so applicable to everyone in this space for sure, but just all humans in general. Like to me, I mean, I grew up on a farm. I grew up raising animals, hunting. So it just kind of fits really well, like being in a ketogenic, low carb diet, mm -hmm. you know, providing for my own food. Like it just all makes sense to me. But mm -hmm. I've always kind of battled with the argument of, okay, I'm, I don't have a problem killing animals if I'm doing so in a sustainable way, if I'm doing so in a, uh, you know, respectful way to nourish my body, but I've never really fully grasped how to make that scale to feed, you know, the human population. And that's where a lot of these ethical arguments come in from an environmental standpoint. And then you have to, it just gets ugly out there when you get into certain, mm -hmm. certain debates. Um, but I'm really excited about the, the concept of regenerative agriculture, what that looks like, how it, how it functions and to be able to paint that picture to, you know, a, a demographic that isn't really in the know about, agriculture in general. I feel like that mm -hmm. is where a lot of this effort needs to be. So kind of peel the, the curtain back on what that is. Like what is regenerative agriculture? How can that possibly scale? I mean, how can we look to this to, to feed a nation? Well, the problem is we actually don't have a problem right now with uh, food production. So um, we produce way more food than we actually need in, uh, for humans already. Um, and so it's not a matter of producing more calories. It's a matter of producing more nutritious food. Mm -hmm. So we have to kind of take this idea that, you know, calories per square acre is really the goal here. That's not the goal. The goal is um, to produce more nutritious food per acre um, and really to get it into the hands of people who need it. So, you know, um, Hunger is not is not an issue of uh, food production. It's a political issue. Um, so just kind of getting that off the table. Um, and and the problem is the way we are producing food today is not a sustainable way. Um, it's sort of like uh, just going into credit card debt. I mean, we're 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 trashing the planet with the way we produce food right now. And if we keep this up, we won't have any topsoil left. Um, in 100 years from now in order to feed the growing population that um, will need food. And so we have to be looking at other ways in order to produce food that are going to improve the land, not degrade it more. Um, and that's where regenerative agriculture comes in. So the idea behind regenerative agriculture is that it actually works with natural cycles and improves the land, doesn't uh, degenerate the land. So it actually builds topsoil and um, improves ecosystem function and um, animal production, um, you know, grazing animals in particular are absolutely essential in a regenerative food system. Um, you know, if you were to think about um, a food system without animals, how are you going to feed those plants? You're going to have to feed them somehow. Um, the traditional ways with animal manure, um, 
and, you know, organic agriculture, um, you know, still relies a lot on animal inputs, blood meal, bone meal, and, um, you know, compost from mm -hmm. dead things. That's what soil is. Um, and if we take animals out of that picture and, um, you know, go towards a more vegan diet, what we're looking at is even more destruction because we would need more chemical inputs. We would need more fossil fuels. We would need more glyphosate. We would need more, more chemicals. There's not a way to naturally grow food without animal inputs. Um, so then the argument could be, well, okay, if we need animals to keep grasslands happy and to grow food, why do we have to eat them? Um, and, you know, we've got major problems with, um, you know, cultures that do just kind of keep animals around that, that aren't actually productive. The, the more responsible thing to do is to give them um, a humane swift death and to actually eat their nutrients instead of just kind of feeding them forever and ever and ever. So, um, that's kind of the, the basics of, of regenerative agriculture is that it's agriculture. Um, it's a way of making food that actually improves nature. I love it. I feel like a lot of the, you know, ethical arguments against consuming food stems from just this lack of awareness, lack of perspective. I'm not really sure, but there's so many people that don't, that there's just no connection. Like they go to the grocery store they buy a package of chicken breast and they just assume that's how they get there. I mean, I think they know that, that they weren't just, you know, wrapped up at the get go, but they don't they don't connect the dots. Um, and I feel like coming from a farming background, you doing what you do, like you just like you you see that cycle of life and it's mm -hmm. not a bad thing. It's not a negative thing. It's a it's actually a beautiful thing. Like I love eating meat that I worked hard to get and you appreciate it much more. You don't waste it. One thing that sickens me more than anything is just throwing food away. But if you know where that food came from and you connect with that, you value that and you don't waste it. And I feel like when you embrace it in that regard, you become totally accepting of the fact that you raising this animal in a, you know, sustainable manner in the right manner. And you don't have a problem killing that animal to consume it for your own nutrition. Right. I mean, humans are omnivores and um, we thrive on animal products. And so to pull that out of the mix is, is actually not eating what our bodies were designed to eat. Um, but, and you're also right that, you know, people, you know, largely who live in cities and never um, have any interaction with how their food is produced are the ones who are largely advocating for a meatless diet. Um, but the, for the folks that actually, you know, grew up in more rural areas, um, folks who grew up on farms, folks who grew up hunting, you know, we all know that, you know, n meat is just an essential part of, of life and that death is an essential part of life. It's not the end of the line. It's just a piece in the circle. Um, and so death is not the scary thing that we need to avoid at all costs. It's actually something that is is just part of the cycles of, of life that nobody is escaping totally i feel like you've got a pretty good pulse on you know just where the market is headed where everything's going with this and there's been so much i mean especially since keto's gotten popular like there's just so much research out there right now that illustrates how you know n meat is just incredibly more nutrient dense than than you know grain-based vegetable foods um how, how do you, I mean, why do you think the the vegan movement, all these beyond meats and, you know, factory foods have gained so much momentum? Like, how do you think that's 
even stayed above water like it has? Well, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I do think that these folks truly do believe that they're doing the right thing um, by, you know, sort of not killing animals, although I would argue that, um, you know, the way the inputs for products like Beyond Burger and Impossible Foods, you know, those, those aren't even in, or, grown organically. And, um, and so they're actually, you know, ecosystem destroyers. Um, all those inputs and, um, you know, producing a product that's way more expensive than even organic grass-fed beef per pound. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a lot of profit to be made in processing um, things and turning them into something else. That's mm -hmm. why our grocery stores are so full of ultra-processed food. It's not, you know, only because they light up all the reward sensors in our brain and people are just sort of addicted to these amazing flavor combinations, but it's also because they're incredibly profitable for these companies to be making. So, you know, the money is not in organic farming. I can attest to that. Um, it's, it, you know, we're not making a killing here, um, growing organic vegetables and pasture-raised meats. Um, that's not where, where the profit centers are. Um, we've taken a very um, conscious lifestyle choice in order to live this way and to provide our kids with this type of environment to grow up on. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of really powerful forces and, you know, Hollywood is, um, very eager to also support it because there's a lot of virtue signaling going on with, um, you know, the idea that eating meat is bad and that being a vegan is, um, sort of spiritually superior. Gotcha. What about like the, the factory, you know, feedlot beef, like having, those kind of infrastructures in place, is that kind of a necessary evil or can that be done away with completely? Like what's a possible solution in that regard? Well, I don't think it's going to go away completely tomorrow. And, um, and I think that there's a lot of complexities to that question. Um, when we say feedlot beef, I think there's this impression that these um, animals are living on feedlots their entire lives, which is not true. Um, so 85% of our beef cattle population right now is grazing on land that we cannot crop. So if you picture most of, um, of the American West, it's uh, either too rocky, too hilly, too dry, or uh, the soil is just too poor in order to be plowing it up and planting corn and wheat and soy. Mm -hmm. um, and so grazing animals are actually able to convert food we can't eat, which is grass, on land we can't crop, which is pasture and rangeland, into nutrient-dense food that is you know, very low calorie for the amount of protein that you can get. Um, these cattle um, that end up on feedlots, a lot of them, you know, a lot of what they're eating is actually food waste. Um, so only uh, about 12% uh, of their overall diet over their life is grain. The rest of it is um, things like corn stalks from the ethanol industry, uh, the leftover fermented um, grain products from the alcohol industry, things that other animals can eat because they don't have the digestive system to handle it. And um, things, these things, if we didn't pass them through cattle, they, we would have no other use for them in our food system. So it's pretty amazing that cattle can eat these items and turn them into meat. I mean, that's, that's a pretty efficient 
a mere miraculous process. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not a hundred percent against feedlot, um, beef. And I think there are better and worse feedlots. There are bigger and smaller feedlots. I'm not for, um, you know, uh, poor animal, animal handling practices, which, um, unfortunately is, can be common on feedlots, but it's not on every feedlot. And so, um, you know, for folks that don't have access to grass fed meat, I still think they should be eating meat. Um, and I think we should be working hard to improve the system. Um, but that being said, uh, grass finished beef, um, is even better from an animal welfare perspective and environmental perspective. Um, so I just think people need to be um, uh, okay with eating the best meat they can afford to eat. Yeah, that's kind of always what I've advocated as well. You know, just get the best that you can afford, but don't let, you know, the price, like if you can't afford the grass-fed, then don't negate the, the benefit of meat in its entirety. Um so, yeah. And I mean, there's a reason why meat is so cheap, why grains are so cheap. I mean, we have to get rid of all the subsidies and really factor in all the external costs um, that are involved in that system. Totally. What was mm-hmm. that statistic you threw out earlier? 85% of the, the beef industry is on the grasslands and then the remaining percentages, that's what's in, or does it transition from the grasslands to the feedlots? Uh, the rest is either on land that we can crop or in a feedlot. Yes. Because most of um, the, you know, quote unquote grain finished, I mean, it's, it's, I've heard, I don't remember the statistic, but it's majority of cattle are all grass uh, or mostly grass throughout the majority of their life. And they're basically just finished on grain. That's uh, correct. So um, cattle that end up in feedlots usually spend about um, three or four months on a feedlot of their whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, but prior to that, they all, you know, calf cow operations are on ranches, like largely in places like Montana and, um, you know, other parts of the American West. And um, those are not feedlots. Those are big rangelands where, you know, they're with their mom and then um, they're either uh, uh, brought to a stalker operation where they're finished up or they're um, brought to a feedlot. Um, And so, um, again, it's just really complicated. It's not, um, you know, totally black or white, but... um, you know, I think it would be really unethical for a doctor to say, well, you should only eat organic vegetables or don't eat vegetables, right? right. Um, certainly organic vegetables are a better choice um, for a lot of reasons. And people should, you know, definitely opt for organic vegetables when they can. Um, and that's my argument with meat as well. I think there's some really good environmental and ethical arguments for grass-fed meat. Um, but from a pure nutrition standpoint, um, it's pretty hard to convince me that grass-fed beef is significantly better for you um, from a nutrition standpoint. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the main argument has been towards like the, the hormones, antibiotics, and like the, the omega pro- fatty acid profile. But with mm. it being such a small percentage of the time, I don't know how much could actually be impacted in that, that short window. Um, I'm sure there is a difference, but not enough to really outweigh things one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, the omega thing is interesting. Um, the studies that are out there, the biggest study that's looked at um, the omegas in grass-fed meat showed 
all over the place numbers, anywhere from one to one in some grass-fed Wagyu beef, um, all the way to a 20 to one omega-6 to three ratio. So just because it's organic or grass-fed does not mean that it has a better omega-3 ratio. Um, but on top of that, a beef is not a great source of omegas to begin with. And mm -hmm. so it's like saying, well, I've got two pennies and that's twice as much money as one penny. It's still not a lot of money and beef is just not how you're going to get your omega threes. The best way to fix your omega three to six ratio, if that's something that you're concerned about, and I think you should be, is to eat less processed food and less grains and less um, vegetable oils and eat more real food. Um, you know, lots of uh, fresh meats and seafood, eat some fatty fish and um, leafy greens. That's, that's how you're going to fix your omega three to six ratio. Totally agree. What about the the flavor? Because I, I know, like I personally have tried to to pick apart the different flavor profiles of a grain finished versus grass finished, and <clears throat> like when I go to Whole Foods and I buy a ribeye that's grass finished versus grain, like from there the grain finished almost always tastes better. Uh, but I've mm -hmm. heard that it's often because that grass finished, you know, cattle just is not finished properly. So I'd love to get your take on this and clear that up. Yeah, I've had it all over the spectrum. I've had some, you know, older animals, um, older dairy animals, even aged old dairy. Um, so it really just depends on the age of the animal, the stress, um, what kind of uh, food it ate uh, as it was being finished. There's there's a lot of factors. The breed of the animal um, actually influences the, the taste of it as well. Um, and so I've had grass-fed beef that I couldn't tell a difference. And I've had grass-fed beef that I definitely could. Um, so I, I just think there's a lot of factors involved. And um, the, the more demand we have for grass-fed and the more competition out there, the better the ranchers are going to get at finishing it. Gotcha. Because like to finish it properly, I mean, it, it takes considerably longer to do that properly with a grass-finished animal, right? Well, I mean, that's the whole reason that it makes more sense a lot of times economically for um, us to finish them on feedlots because you can finish them on, you know, for three months in a feedlot where on grass, it would take a lot longer and it's just a lot more expensive because you're, you're holding on to that animal for a lot longer. And um, so, you know, and in, in some places it might not be a viable option economically for the rancher to be finishing on, um, on grass. And so, um, there's just a lot of factors involved. It's, it's, it, uh, I, I feel like I've said it's complicated a million times already in the, in the 20 minutes we've been chatting, but it's, um, there's just a lot that goes into it, but we get into that in the book a lot. Yeah. I looked through the, the table of contents and you'll, You'll cover the bases pretty good. Like, I'm excited. I haven't read it yet intentionally. I didn't want to read it before the podcast because mm -hmm. I wanted to just kind of, you know, preliminary peruse through it. But I'm excited to dive into the book for sure. What about organ meats? I know that's a, a super hot topic right now. And a lot of people look at, especially like the carnivore movement, you know, a lot of them are just mm -hmm. living off of ribeyes, which to me, you know, for, it's kind of you have to look at it from a nutritional lens and also from an ethical lens as well. Like, I, I, I get the argument that there's not really much nutritional difference to ribeyes. I mean, organ meats obviously are very micronutrient dense, but there's been an argument made that you can just eat ribeyes and be fine. But from a holistic standpoint, I feel like it's my responsibility to consume and use as much of that animal as possible. So I mm -hmm. try and incorporate the organ meats, but I'd love to get your take on that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons people don't eat organ meats and they try to justify it is because they don't like the taste of it mm -hmm. um, and they didn't grow up eating them. Um, and, and I'm the first to admit, I do not love the taste of liver. Um, heart is different because it's a muscle. And so it tastes more like muscle meat. Um, but liver, kidneys, and, and some of the other organs are definitely can be intense flavors, um, which is why we largely export them to other countries like Mexico and China, where they actually eat a ton of organ meats. Um, and so I, I do think they're incredibly nutrient dense. Um, I end up um, either freezing liver and just kind of swallowing like mini ice cube of mm. liver um, or taking desiccated liver tablets um, like from ancestral supplements. Uh, they have a really nice grass fed um, liver supplement that you can just take. Uh, so I, I do think it's, it's important though, to um, honor the entire animal and to try to utilize as much of it as possible. And um, you know, unfortunately we're just seeing, um, even with the leather industry, um, you know, producers are burying leather hides, cow hides, because the leather industry is just falling apart right now because everyone's going towards vegan leathers and, um, you know, car manufacturers are getting leather out of their cars and things like that. Um, and unfortunately, you know, animals aren't grown for their leather. They're, you know, not in the case of cattle anyway, their the leather is a usable byproduct from the meat industry. Um, and in fact, we don't, um, a lot of the animal we don't eat. And, um, I have a great graphic about that in, um, in the book and on uh, sacredcow.info where I show all the different things that we actually get from cattle. We use everything from the animal and, you know, whether we sell that to other cultures or um, we, you know, use, uh, I mean, fireworks, glue, lipstick, footballs, it's just so many different products, insulin, really important medical, medical um, supplies are, are derived from cattle. It's crazy because I've always viewed, you know, ranching, agriculture, animals as renewable resources. Because when you look at what you're able to accomplish with them, I mean, it's I mean, it's a renewable resource. That's that's what it is. But that's like I've gotten frowned upon for saying that. But it's truly amazing what all you can do with an animal from a food consumption standpoint. But then all the byproducts that you can produce with it. It's like, why would you not view it as such? Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what about, um, I kind of want to just get a picture of what a typical day in the life of you, of you looks like. Like, what is, what is a day in the <laughs> life of a regenerative farm? Uh, let's see. Um, well, actually, um, I'm more of a nutritionist and, and writer these days. And so not so much working, you know, day to day on the farm. Um, so, I mean, I could tell you what I do, but it's, it's probably a lot of, of, of what you do too. Yeah. Um, checking email and, um, and, and that kind of stuff in between cooking for my kids and, and all of that. Um, but on the farm right now, um, you know, early June here in New England, um, it's a very, very busy time because they're trying to get all the crops into the ground. Um, uh, we have a new flock of chickens that we just got. I think there are 600 this year. Um, and they're all mobile. Um, and so we moved them around the farm and they just started laying eggs. Um, and the eggs are really amazing. They're a deep, deep orange color. 
Um, we have a flock of sheep and some goats that we move from pasture to pasture. And we've got uh, two groups of uh, pigs that we're raising in the woods. And so all these animals need, um, you know, water and, um, you know, different types of care. You got to check the fencing constantly to make sure they're not going to escape and run up the street. Um, you know, the police have my cell phone on speed dial because the animals get loose often and they're running up the road or something like that. And so, um, there's, there's just a lot of work constantly, but I'd say June and July, um, are two of the busiest months on uh, a farm that has animals and vegetables because you're, you're planting, you're harvesting, um, for our uh, vegetable CSA. Um, you have to stay on top of the weeds or else they're going to crush you. And, um, and again, as I mentioned, um, earlier, this is our busiest year. We've never had such high demand and, you know, people are just really, reassessing how they buy their food, really wanting to support small farmers and just concerned in general about their food supply. Yeah. Speaking of, I mean, with, with all this, like Tyson closing a third of its plants or whatever the statistic was there, like, how do you think that's going to impact things on a, on a global scale? Um, it'll be interesting to see, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, um, I, I've definitely noticed in the grocery stores, people are putting, you know, the stores are putting limits on how much meat you can eat. And mm -hmm. um, I think this is just the beginning of, of some problems in the food system that are going to come out. I think this summer, you know, once we need lots of people out there in the fields harvesting vegetables, we're going to see some problems in that supply chain as well. It's just that we haven't seen it yet because um, it, this has been happening in the spring when, when not a lot of harvesting is happening, but I think we're going to see some major problems also with our, um, produce infrastructure as well. And so what I hope is that this book and film couldn't be coming out at a better time, um, when people are actually much more aware of, um, how fragile our food system is and how dangerous it is to just have a handful of companies supplying the entire country. I mean, from a national security perspective, not a good idea. What you want is decentralized food production, regional food production, and much smaller scale food production. Um, you know, when, when we only allow um, monopolies to take over, um, pretty bad things happen. Totally agree. I feel like you know, just kind of looking at it uh, from the outside, I feel like the interest in knowing where your food comes from, sustainable agriculture, all that has started to gain some momentum. Though, I mean, obviously the vegan movement and, you know, the Beyond Meat has gained a lot of momentum as well. But I feel like, you know, especially within all my circles that I'm running in, the, the interest in farming, ranching, what goes into that lifestyle has become, you know, quote unquote, cool again like people are intrigued by that they want to learn more about it they want to kind of get their hands dirty and see what that would entail mm -hmm. yeah I mean we do CrossFit workouts on the farm too and I'm, I'm always so amazed at these guys that are like armchair warriors and then you know want to run around with sandbags I'm like you know we actually do farmers carries like mm -hmm. that's a thing <laughs> that actually happens and so why not get your workout while you're actually working um, uh, my husband has perfect six-pack abs all the time. Um, and, and that's just from the physical work that he's doing constantly. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of people sort of, um, fed up with the rat race and realizing that there's more to life and, um, we only get to be here once. And so why not do 
you know, spend your days doing something that's meaningful to you. And I think people are realizing that, you know, if you want to be, if you like being outside, if you love nature, um, if you love using your body and moving constantly and you like teamwork, um, there's kind of nothing better than being a farmer. Totally agree. It's kind of interesting because I feel like so many people have moved away from that lifestyle because they were going to these larger metropolitan areas for work, for business. But now that everything's starting to become much more remote, I'm hoping that people, you know, like embrace the idea of, you know, buying five acres out in the middle of nowhere and working from home and and trying to become more self-sufficient. So, you know, with that being a possibility now, how would you recommend, like if you had to do over again and just start from, you know, humble beginnings with a little hobby farm, like what would you recommend? What are some good resources? How would you go about it? Like what direction would you point people in? Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, my previous book, Homegrown Paleo Cookbook, is actually a full homesteading guide. And I have um, plans in there on what you would do with an acre and with five acres. Um, And it has um, a full guide to growing vegetables and raising animals on your own. So um, I've actually already tackled that um, I'll in, be getting in a Homegrown copy Paleo. I'm intrigued by this. <laughs> yes. Uh, so that was my, that was my, uh, unfortunately it says cookbook in there, but it's much, much more than a cookbook. It was just, that was the bookseller's idea on how to sell it. Um, but it's a, it's a full on homesteading guide as well. Because you can do, I mean, you can do quite a bit with, you know, five acres. I mean, mm-hmm. you can, you can be totally self-sustaining if done properly with, with that small plot of land, correct? Well, I think that it depends on where in the country you are, what the weather's like and everything. I mean, if we're talking about five acres in Nevada, we're talking about five acres in Vermont or five acres in Georgia, you know, what's the soil quality? Um, Are you near irrigation in case you get a drought? I mean, there's a lot of questions. Um, And that's why it's really hard often for, you know, folks to say, well, you know, is this replicatable here? And it's like, well, uh, you know, the, the, the earth is not, just one ecosystem everywhere. Right, right. Um, and that's why we can't just go plant trees everywhere. And, um, you know, grasslands don't want lots of trees. It's actually pretty harmful for grasslands. And so the idea that we need to go around and just plant forest everywhere, and that's like the most sustainable option for the world is is incredibly misguided. Gotcha, gotcha. I'm going to have to get that book. And re- I'm in Arkansas, so I feel like I've got a pretty pretty conducive ah. environment to uh to be in like a little hobby farm for sure. Yeah. Arkansas is a great place. And actually Lauren Stein, the um, content manager for my blog actually lives in Arkansas and has um, cattle and goats and is a professor at the university of Arkansas. Really? Well, I'll be Mm -hmm. hopefully moving back. That's where I graduated from was the university of Arkansas. Um, I'm not far from there now, but it's a, it's a pretty cool little spot. Arkansas is like a hidden gym. I mean, you can do a lot in the outdoors out here for sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's, that's a great place to have five acres. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so talk to me about the, the document that's coming out. That's set to release here soon, isn't it? Yes. Um, I, um, you know, as we speak, I'm trying to figure out a way to make um, the documentary accessible to folks who are um, either pre-ordering the book or make it accessible right around when the book launches, at least for a week or so. Um, so I'm, I'm working hard to, to figure that out right now. Um, so folks should 
you know, definitely by the time you air this, um, I'll have it figured out hopefully. And so folks can go to sacredcow.info and, and um, learn more about that, or at the very least RSVP for when the film does come out. Um, and uh, so the documentary was something that I made because I realized that not everyone loves reading books and that um, it could be intimidating for folks to um, get all of this information if it's just in one big scary book. And so, um, and young people in particular are much more likely to consume um, movies uh, for their information. And there's definitely a lot of food movies out there that are um, full of misinformation. So. Um, I wanted to create a film that actually celebrated um, folks that are raising meat the right way and explain how it can be done the right way and why meat is a healthy food and why ethically okay to have a little bit of death in your life. And so um, Sacred Cow, the film, is more of a story version of the book. Um, and... Uh, we go to Chihuahua, Mexico. We go to Northern England. We go to Belgium. Um, we visit Joel Salatin at Polyface Farm in Virginia. Um, we went out to California. We went to all these different places and interviewed experts and farmers and butchers, um, folks that are really dedicated to um, the topic of better meat and um, collected all of their stories and um, it was quite a difficult process to put it all together into one film, um, especially because this is my my first project, but I am pretty proud of how it turned out. Um, and we were able actually to secure Nick Offerman as our celebrity narrator, which is really exciting. Um, so hopefully he'll be able to bring in more people um, th just because of, of his recognizable name. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm I'm pretty excited about it. There there isn't anything like it out there right now. Yeah, I'm incredibly excited to see it. Does it kind of model the uh, the book and that it's got like a section that tackles the nutrition and the environmental and then the the ethical kind of bridges it all together? Uh, it's less linear than the book, so the book goes in a very logical format. The film kind of weaves everything together um, in a in a slightly different way. So we do start out with. Um, how did we get here? Like, what is our industrial agriculture system? How did it happen? And how did this impact our health? And then we zoom back out and look at, um, you know, what the current arguments right now, what's going on with the anti-meat movement. Um, we visit with some butchers who actually has some crazy protesters um, try to damage their business and, you know, talk to them about uh, the fallout from that. And, um, and, we meet with Lear Keith, who wrote a book called The Vegetarian Myth, and talk to her about um, her experience on a vegan diet and why she went back to eating meat again. And she's she's thinks really deeply about all this stuff. And so it's, uh, I mean, it's hard to get everything in the book into an hour and 20 minute piece. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like it moves along pretty quickly. We have some really fun animations in there that I think um, really light up um, what we wrote about in the book. Yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly excited to see it because I feel like there's so much, you know, there, there's so many propaganda vegan documentaries out there. Uh, and it's, it's just unfortunate because, like we said earlier, there's just a lot more money to be made in that industry than there is in the organic, sustainably raised meat industry. So you get like a lot of the flash and sizzle that comes with that. And it's, it's just so mis misguided. I mean, I feel like 
for people to really make a movement towards this better way of producing food, they have to be in it for the underlying, you know, right reasons. So for you to be able to illustrate that in the film, I think is going to be very powerful. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited for it. And we've got a lot of support. Um, I was able to raise all the money uh, I needed for the film through um, individuals and um, crowdfunding and um, a handful of companies that are dedicated to better meat. And so, um, yeah, I'm really excited for it to get out there. I love it. I love it. Well, I will certainly promote it when it goes live without a doubt. Um, I want to just kind of wrap this up with giving you the chance. I mean, your book and your documentary is going to sh- say everything you wanted to say, but if, if you could have like one parting thought to people listening that just are on the fence about how to, how to tackle this, how to go into it, like where to, where to turn for information or what mm-hmm. compels you personally to make this your life's purpose and mission. Like I, I just kind of want to hear your ethos here. Yeah. I mean, I think um, a, a lot of people, once they, kind of cure their their own personal diet issues that they've had, then try to figure out what else they can do. And so, you know, maybe that's what you did when when you started this podcast. Like how how can I spread the word? How can I help other people? It definitely is what um, inspired me to become a dietitian. I, I wasn't a dietitian before I changed my diet and um, it was really life changing for me and I wanted to I wanted to help other people learn what I learned. Um, and so the same is, is true with um, the Sacred Cow Project. There's a lot of misinformation out there, and um, especially in our school system, especially with our young people. Mm-hmm. So they're showing films like Cowspiracy in my son's high school. Wow. Um, and it's rural versus urban, left versus right. And I think that um, most issues are way more complicated than just black or white. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly with Sacred Cow, that's what we're trying to introduce is that it's not just meat versus plants, that there's a lot of nuance to this conversation and we need a lot more deep thinking when it comes to this. And so hopefully that's what people walk away with, with that. Um, And I should also mention that um, Rob Wolf, my co-author, and I are also making a course that people can take called Meat Curious. Uh, And it's for those folks that are kind of on the fence about, you know, have they cut down on their meat or are they an ex-vegan or vegetarian just you know, want to incorporate meat but are really concerned about it. And so um, we developed this course uh, to walk people through why it's okay to eat meat and how to source it better, how to handle it, um, what are how to deal with it socially. If you're somebody who, you know, was in some vegan circles and, um, uh, you know, just needs to kind of, you know, have all these arguments at the tip of their uh, tongue. We we provide them all for them. Wow. So this is like an all-inclusive, everything you need to turn your life around platform, basically. Turn your life around with meat. I should have called it that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I can tell you're incredibly passionate about it, and that shows through in everything you're saying and doing. So I'm incredibly excited to see it all go live. Um, it's coming from a good place for sure. If there's anything I can do to help, I mean, definitely let me know. Yeah, I mean, for we have a lot of shareable graphics um, on uh, sacredcow.info forward slash book. Um, we, you know, we we've tried to make it as shareable as possible so that everybody can just help get 
the word out about this important project and um, and help support it. I'm trying to 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 raise a little extra money right now to be able to go to lots of schools and talk to kids about this, to go to colleges and, and talk to college kids about this. And um, you know, I'd I'd like to be able to bring this film to as many people as possible and to be there to answer questions for folks. I love it. The the whole misinformation within the school system especially i mean it's just that's where it's really frustrating because it's just going down the wrong path right out of the gates um mm-hmm. i mean like the school lunches the information that's put out there the, the food pyramid it's all just totally backwards i think so too well keep fighting the good fights deanna is, is that the the best place they can go to find you the sacred cow dot net uh, sacredcow.info. Yep. Info. Uh, okay. That's the website for it. And um, and then I'm on Instagram at Sustainable Dish. That's my um, prop, the platform where I hang out the most. Perfect. I will certainly link out to both of those. Uh, keep killing it and let me know if there's ever anything I can do to help. All right. Thank you so much, Robert. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. <laughs>